Steps up, looks, throws toward the corner of the end zone. And he's Welcome to the Duck Pod. I'm Ryan Thorburn, joined by Austin Meek. Austin, uh, it's only June, but football is approaching, and thanks to Mike White, we're still relatively busy around the office, so it's a good time to kind of test our new podcasting equipment and talk a little Oregon sports. Um, how's uh, What's kind of your reaction to Mike White, Oregon's highly successful softball coach, um, bolting for the University of Texas on Monday? You know, I was pretty surprised. Um, you uh, you broke that story, and when I when I read it, my first reaction was, um, I I can't believe that Oregon let this guy walk. You know, it's the kind of story that um, maybe outside of Eugene, it's not going to make a big splash. The softball coach leaves for the University of Texas. But uh, here in Eugene, it's kind of a big deal because softball had really developed a niche here. They have a new stadium. They have a really passionate fan base. And you got the feeling that Mike White was really the guy that makes all that happen. Um, it's not like this has you know, traditionally been a softball powerhouse. The success really has come since he's been here. Um, and you probably have um, as good a sense of this as anyone, but certainly seemed like uh, Oregon was not especially aggressive in trying to convince him to stay when Texas came in and, and made him a better offer. No, I think they might have thought that he was bluffing. Um, before Jane Sanders Stadium opened, uh, as you'll recall, he interviewed at Arkansas and Oregon gave him a, a bump in pay um, at that time, which was only you know about three years ago or so. Um, so here he is three years later, you know, flirting with Texas. Do you give him another bump or do you kind of assume that he's just leveraging Texas to stay at Oregon where he seemed very happy and had built obviously a top five program, a annual Pac-12 champion, um, frequent college World Series participant. Um, but he was not bluffing. He feels like he's one of the very top coaches in this sport and um, with what Oklahoma's doing with their coach granted she has won four national championships but uh, she's basically making a million dollars every year through 2024 um, she's kind of reshaped the the landscape of how softball coaches are paid um, I know that Florida stepped up and had to pay their coach um, a lot more money I, from what I understand in the 600,000 range um, he was even asked during the World Series on camera about the Texas vacancy. So I'm sure Florida uh, took care of that quickly. And so Mike White thinks he's in that that level. And um, the only thing he's missing is the national championship trophy. And, and he really feels like he can do that at Texas. How much of this do you think was Rob Mullen sending the message that, Mike, we're a little bit tired of you 
flirting with other jobs. We're not going to give you a raise anytime some other school comes along. And look, you know, five Pac-12 championships, five trips to the College World Series, can't argue with that level of success. But at the same time, maybe from Rob Mullen's perspective, he was thinking, you haven't taken another step with the program since we renegotiated this contract. And obviously, Mike White had them at a really high level. But the last couple of years, they've gone to Oklahoma City as a team that people thought could win it all. Uh, and both times, they've they've had an early exit. And so maybe from Rob Mullen's perspective, it was like, you know, if, if you want more money, you got to take another step. Um, and we haven't really seen that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I mean... He did get the raise. He was making an average of about $237,000 a year, which seems like quite a bit of money to coach softball. Uh, he made $90,000 this year in in bonuses. Obviously, if he won the national championship, that would be a significant bonus, I believe $50,000. So it's like you want to make money, just you know, finish the job and, and get this bonus. But... You know, at the same time, I guess he was kind of a victim of his own success. He's mm-hmm. getting to Oklahoma City every year and and being critiqued for really not performing well. And he really tried everything to analyze what goes wrong with this team in Oklahoma City that's just steamrolling top 10 teams all year and then really can't get out of its own way down there. Um, I happened to go this year because, um, you know, obviously it's an expense to go to Oklahoma City for over a week to cover that thing and we thought they were going to win it or at least make it to the championship uh, series the way they played this year but it just was not happening so um, it's interesting I mean it kind of segues to an issue. I mean, I don't think it's anything personal between Rob Mullins and, and Mike White. I think obviously Mullins would love to have Mike White, but it's this issue of you know how much is Oregon going to pay successful coaches in non-revenue sports? When you look at the landscape of college athletics right now, um, the Big Ten is going to pay all of their institutions, all their athletic departments, $50 million in 2018. Um, The PAC-12 is projected to pay all of them, all of their schools, roughly $33 million. Um, The Big 12 is only at $38 million, but when you look at Tier 3 rights, which you know, Texas leads the way in, they add so much more money on the side, you know, Texas and Oklahoma do that. I mean, it's tough. They can, they can buy your coach if they really want to. Yeah. Cause when you talk about the tier three rights for the PAC 12, that's the PAC 12 network and the PAC 12 network is not generating the revenue for the schools that they projected that it would. And it, you're right. It's, it's the non-revenue sports. I think that are really going to feel this because Part of it is uh, something that's different about the Pac-12 and the West Coast is the emphasis that they put on a lot of those sports. You know, there's a reason why Stanford has won that, uh, whatever it's called, the Director's Cup so many years in a row, because it's not that they're great at football and basketball. It's that, yeah, swimming and tennis and track and field and all these other sports that there's really a culture of that in the Pac-12. And where that you know runs into a financial reality is when you are exceeding uh, expectations in those non-revenue sports, your coaches are in line to make more money basically every year. And there are schools and conferences that have more revenue coming in that are in the position to offer more money to your 
coaches in non-revenue sports. So what do you do? You know, do you sacrifice something in football or men's basketball to keep your softball coach who has been to the college world series five times? Or do you say, Hey, we'd love to keep you Mike White, but ultimately it's, it's football and it's men's basketball that we need to be successful in order to be financially viable as an athletic department. I think there's a misconception, you know, nationally for people who don't really follow Oregon closely that, you know, they have Phil Knight as a booster. So they have unlimited resources at Oregon, which is not true. I mean, Phil Knight can donate money. Um, to build a football complex or uh, a science campus or um, the Sanders family can help you build a brilliant uh, softball stadium. But then you have your own budget where you have to, you know, pay for the lights and the custodial services in those places and, you know, take care of the coaching staff and the travel and the recruiting and all that. So uh, you can't just withdraw money from Phil's uh, checking account to uh, keep Mike White. That's not how it works around here. Yeah. And I had some conversations with some people yesterday and they were not happy with Rob Mullins that he allowed Mike White to walk. I, I, the people that I talked to felt like even though you know, it, it gets expensive to take care of all of these coaches who are succeeding at a high level that kind of comes with the territory. And as an AD, if you've got a coach who is succeeding at the top of the game every single year, then you expect that he's going to have interest from other schools and you got to be able to get out there and, and find the money. You got to raise it somehow. You got to tap into you know, the, the passion that obviously does exist for softball in this community because we see it. We hear from you know softball fans and whether those fans that we hear from are in a position to, um, you know, to support the program financially to the level that they would have needed to keep Mike White here. I don't know. You know I don't know how many deep pocketed softball boosters Rob Mullins can call, but I know there were some people talking about it and saying, did Oregon try hard enough to find the money that they needed to keep Mike White here? Yeah, we definitely hear from softball fans as much or more than any other fan base of Oregon sports. And one thing they really are bothered by is the situation with baseball. Um, Not necessarily that baseball is losing, but that their baseball coach, George Horton, uh, makes $500,000 a year um, without these expectations of winning the Pac-12 and going to the College World Series. And then you let uh, a guy whose stadium is packed, who is winning the Pac-12 every year, walk. Uh, and he's really essentially making half that in terms of base salary. So I know the two really don't have a lot to do with each other. It's but and but yet they do from a perception standpoint. Yeah, baseball's really a sore subject I think for Oregon and yeah, it's it's hard because yeah, it's for whatever reason it's really tempting to compare those two sports, baseball and softball. It's hard to think about them separately, especially when George Horton is making more money than Mike White, drawing fewer fans, having less success, far less success. Um and you know, year after year, it continues to be here. And 
it's it's hard for softball fans i think to reconcile that is it it does seem like the two programs are are judged in some ways by by a different standard um one baseball program that is not having those difficulties is oregon state um as we tape this tuesday afternoon the beavers hopefully are getting ready to play their opener against arkansas in the championship series of the college world series ryan have you been uh you been following the beavers have you have you jumped on the bandwagon because i admit i kind of have i'm i'm kind of pulling for the beavers i i just think they're i think they're a really fun baseball team to watch they they play the game hard they're super competitive they're super tough i i admit i've kind of gotten sucked in by this oregon state team yeah i actually covered their super regional clinching game which was a four-hour game by the way um one of those deals (laughs) and um just talking to some people that have watched Oregon State baseball, you know, through the years, through the their time, especially the Pat Casey era, dating back to some of their really great teams. Obviously, he won two World Series there. They, a lot of the f- people close to that program, believe this is the best offensive club they've ever had. Um, I know Luke Heimlich gets all of the headlines for obvious reasons. He's their star pitcher with um, heavy duty baggage that he carries around, but. Um, He's not the team um, by himself. They have a, are loaded with Major League Baseball prospects, and they are fun to watch because they hit the ball. Uh, they can fall behind four nothing, and it's it's not a big deal. They can they can rally, and and those kind of games are fun in Omaha when a team uh, can put those rally caps on and make for an exciting comeback. That was kind of what I wrote on Monday going into the championship series is like a lot of people I'm very conflicted about the Luke Heimlich situation every time he's on the mound I have very mixed feelings about it but the team as a whole and the 34 other players on the team I find them to be really likable and compelling and you know really an example of of everything a baseball team ought to be and that's part of why I I I, I find myself kind of pulling for this Oregon State team, even though I you know, obviously you know, we don't root for anybody. We don't look at the games the way a fan would. But I, you know, I'm in spite of my really mixed feelings about the Heimlich situation. I, I really admire a lot about this Oregon State team, and it it was interesting to read the response from a lot of Oregon State fans because I got a bunch of emails from Oregon State fans saying, "Why do you have to keep picking on us? Why do you have to keep bringing up this Luke Heimlich thing?" Um, which just surprised me a little bit, I guess, because yeah, the, the point of the column was to really applaud Oregon State for everything they represent uh, while acknowledging you know, the obvious uh, you know, conflicted feelings that come up because of the Heimlich situation. You know? And it just tells me that um, you know, this Oregon State fan base, I think, has, has really been... Um, really been polarized by by all of this and um it's really hard to talk about oregon state baseball uh, without talking about the heimlich situation and beaver fans have become you know they're they're so on edge because of that they're so defensive about it um that you know in, in some ways i think it's made it hard for them even to just focus on on their team and in, enjoying it because i think they're always feeling like they're under attack from somebody and you know it's just it's a it's just a, a 
a weird situation. You know, I, I hope that I never have to, you know, never have to see anything like it again in college sports because it's been really ugly and uh, it's it's created a lot of really deep resentment and hard feelings from a lot of people. Um, it's it's hard to separate, but if if you can just think about baseball for a minute. Um, there's no denying that this Oregon State team is really compelling to watch. Yeah, college baseball is is kind of like the NHL in that it's kind of a, a niche sport to some degree because, you know, it's not, you know, a lot of good players just go to the minor leagues and stuff like that. They use a different kind of bat, you know, obviously. Um, Oregon never knows who's going to be on the roster because guys are signing or not signing. It's So when you have a really good program, um, obviously you're going to have a big following and, and you're going to get excited about it. Whereas, um, you know, like in the NHL, Las Vegas, when they're doing well in hockey, it's a hockey town and and. You know, when the Colorado Avalanche are not, all of a sudden it's not a hockey town in Denver where it was in the 90s. So it's kind of an interesting sport for me to follow because I didn't grow up around college baseball. Um, I went to Wyoming. Their baseball program was disbanded years ago because of Title IX. Colorado was disbanded. Colorado State. So uh, it's when you have a survivor like Oregon State that's thriving um, and it's one of the sports where you dominate Oregon and then uh, the columnist from the Register Guard keeps mentioning Luke Heimlich. <laughs> I can see where you get, you know, a little perturbed, but I think they've got to understand, you know, the whole history of that story and really think about who they're rooting for there yeah well and the thing i keep going back to and i know that oregon state fans don't like to hear this and i understand it but the fact of the matter is if that story had not become public last year luke heimlich would not be pitching for the beavers right now luke heimlich would be in the pros and I think Oregon State probably would not be in the College World Series if they didn't have Luke Heimlich this year. Yeah. Their team is far more than Luke Heimlich. Don't get me wrong. As as you said, their lineup is loaded. Two first-round draft picks, top to bottom, they hit the ball. So they would be a very good team even without Luke Heimlich. But their pitching is not very deep. Uh, and Luke Heimlich has been their ace all season. He's going to have the ball in Game 1 against Arkansas. So it's hard for me to not go back there and think about the fact that the reason he's there is because this, because of this story, because it became public and I'm not, not saying it. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not ripping him for that. I'm not saying he shouldn't be on the team right now. I'm just saying it's a fact. It's true. And for me, it's hard for me to ignore that when he's taking the ball in in game one with a national championship at stake. Well, since this is the duck pod, we should probably transition out of the beaver pod here. It doesn't quite Um, have the same ring to it. Ultimately, I think what people want to hear is about college football and Oregon Ducks football. And we'll get to that here in a minute. But um, just kind of getting back to uh, things that Oregon has lost recently. They've um, you know, lost their assistant track coaches to the University of Washington, and obviously they've lost the East Grandstand at Hayward Field, which was <laughs> torn down. Uh, just it's been kinda, a hard week. I mean, we're new to Eugene and Tracktown relative to 
you know, all of the history, but we've covered five years worth of, you know, very large scale track meets at Hayward Field. I find myself, you know, just being a, a reporter, like it was strange to see that thing go down. Yeah, I was a little sentimental about it, too. I, I took the kids out there on Friday afternoon, and we were standing out there when the last timbers came down from the East Grandstand. And certainly there are people in this community who have a lot longer history with it than we do. But, um, you know, this whole thing has just been kind of a, a messy chapter in the U of O's history. And I've, I've felt all along that anything you do to Hayward Field is going to engender a certain amount of opposition because people feel so strongly about it. But the process that the U of O used in in doing this project uh, really exacerbated that and and brought it out and created more opposition to it. Um, Because the thing you can't do with something that people are so attached to is send the message that, ah, we don't really care how people feel about it. We're going to do what we want to do, and we're not really going to listen to what anybody has to say. And right or wrong, a lot of people came away with that impression of how the U of O handled Hayward Field. Some of that maybe not completely based in the reality of it, Uh, but in a situation like that, you got to know how passionate people are and you got to go above and beyond to make people feel like their input is, is being considered. And I don't think that happened in this process. I think it was uh, kind of a dysfunctional process from the start. And it got to a point where U of O had to go forward with a plan that a lot of people were not on board with, and they didn't really do anything to sell people on that plan. They basically said, this is how it's going to be, like it or not. It's fascinating that Phil Knight, you know, obviously became Phil Knight at Hayward Field, running for Coach Bowerman and um, coming up with the first Nike and all of that stuff, you had a chance to go up uh, and sit down with Phil. Obviously, he wanted to talk about this issue ahead of time. And uh, what was his quote? That he'd be the most reviled man in Eugene or something. Uh Um, What what was your biggest takeaway from that sit down with, you know, one of uh, the most notable people in in sports history? Well, I think he felt that, that, there hadn't been enough effort to to sell people on this or to explain the thought process behind it. And he wanted to clear the air, so to speak, about why this was happening. And I don't know that it put the issue to rest or that it convinced a lot of people to change their minds about it. I do think it was good that he did it. Uh, in the interest of civic discourse, you know, I, I think it was the right thing to do to speak publicly about why this was happening. Uh, probably would have been a good thing to have happened earlier, you know, before they were this far along in the process. But I, I do think he is sensitive to the the sentimental attachment that people have to Hayward Field, and I think um, I think he shares that to a degree. But I also think he, you know, he's a businessman and he looks at things uh, through the lens of of dollars and cents. And he wants to feel like he's making a good investment. 
and I don't think he felt like putting money into the East Grandstand, whether it was viable or not in the short term, I don't think he felt like it was a good investment. A lot of people disagree with him on that. <laughs> but the thing is, when it's your money, you get to say whether you think it's a good investment or not. Yeah, you don't get to be a, a billionaire many times over by being sentimental. It's it's, it's all true. about what's next. And there's no doubt that this new stadium, it might not be perfect, but is there any doubt that this is going to be the premier track and field venue in the world? No, I think it's going to be outstanding when it's done. And I do think it's, you know, a lot of this... Uh, opposition is going to die down when when the new stadium is built but some of it won't there's going to be people it's kind of like Matthew Knight Arena now we still hear people say gosh what about Matt Court I miss Matt Court it's just not the same those people are going to be the same people who say oh, I miss the old Hayward Field I miss the East Grandstand no matter how spectacular the new stadium is we're still going to be hearing that from from a certain contingent of fans you also chatted a little bit about football with Phil Knight um, obviously it's been a little chaotic over there as well they're going to have their third head coach in as many seasons with Willie Taggart leaving for Florida State interesting that Phil tried to keep Willie and Willie that wasn't enough for Willie he really did want to go back to Florida yeah when you list off the uh, the body blows to use Phil's word that that Oregon has taken over the last six or eight months you know Mike White and the Powells and Hayward Field and put Willie Taggart in there too because Oregon fans aren't used to being left at the altar that way a guy comes in for one year and then bolts out of town so that's that's been a uh, it's been a hard thing it's been a a little bit of a hit to the the pride probably for a lot of for Phil Knight and a lot of Oregon people but I think the uh, I think the silver lining to that at least right now is Mario Cristobal's first six or eight months on the job have been pretty impressive if you take out the Las Vegas Bowl which obviously was a disaster but everything since then um I think has has generated quite a bit of of optimism from people about Mario Cristobal, especially with the recruiting. Um, you had a story on Monday about uh, two more guys jumping on board with Mario Cristobal. The class is now ranked sixth in the country. Uh, Mario Cristobal keeps that up. I think uh, I think it'll really um, ease the ease the sting of Willie Taggart leaving town. Yeah, timing is everything. So Mario, you would think, comes out here to coach with Willie. Willie leaves immediately. You think, oh man, what a mistake. No, timing was perfect for Mario. He kind of leverages that situation where they have this great 2018 recruiting class, you know, on the precipice of signing it. Willie leaves. You know, I think that played a big role in Mario getting the job, the ability to keep recruiting on the right track, to retain the key assistance from Willie's staff. Um, you know, keeping Jim Lev at, at Oregon instead of going to Florida State, those sort of things. It's kind of been a perfect storm for Mario. You know, like you said, beyond the Las Vegas Bowl, you have recruiting back on track. You know, you mentioned their number six and in the rankings, they were, you know, number one by one service about a year ago. So they've got that back on track. Um, you inherit Justin Herbert. Um, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime quarterback, unless you already had Marcus Mariota. So they've had two 
really outstanding uh, stories at quarterback in the last you know four years. And then, as I mentioned, you retain, retain Jim Levitt. So you have recruiting going, you have a defense on the rise, and you have a quarterback who uh, appears to be headed to you know the NFL, if not you know a Heisman Trophy ceremony in the next year or two. So things have lined up quite well for Mario Cristobal. Add on to that uh, a pretty favorable schedule, should we say, yeah. in 2018. I think things are looking up for Oregon football. Yeah, I admit I was on the skeptical side when Oregon promoted Mario Cristobal, and I think part of that was I'm not sure that there was another Power 5 school that would have hired Mario Cristobal to be their head coach. Um, yeah, he he was not necessarily you know, somebody who was at the top of everybody's list by any means. But I do think he is a better coach for Oregon right now than he would be for anybody else. You know, there are reasons why maybe he wouldn't have been the right coach for another school, but he could still be the right coach for Oregon. And I think it's a lot of the things you said that he was in a unique position to be able to continue um, the positive direction that Oregon had going. And I I think his strengths are going to work well at Oregon. You know, I felt like a lot of people felt like Oregon had really untapped potential in recruiting that was not being realized under Mark Helfrich because the approach just didn't maximize the things that Oregon had to offer. And I do think that Mario Cristobal's approach um, is a better fit for what Oregon has to offer, which is a lot. And I think that's showing up in the types of players he's been able to get commitments from so far. I remember just when I was in Colorado and Oregon was, you know, crushing it with Chip Kelly and really became this national brand. You're like, well, that's cool. They have the uniforms and the cool offense and all that. But then when you get here and my first road game was at Virginia, um, I remember seeing fans, Virginia football fans, bless their heart. They don't have a lot of success historically, given that they have a pretty good budget. You'd see like these 45-year-old men um, in a Virginia, you know, uniform or not a uniform, a jersey at the game. And their kids would have Oregon uniforms on Mariota stuff. It's like, wow, this really is a national brand. And I think uh, Willie Taggart, that's what drew him here. He felt like he could recruit from Florida to California to Hawaii. Uh, And I think Mario is going to do that same thing. The interesting thing for Mario, I mean, the size of some of these offensive and defensive linemen that they're getting, that's kind of the the knock on Oregon, I guess, was that, you know, they would play in Ohio State or in Auburn or, or you know, one of these traditional Southern powers and that that's where they didn't match up was at the line of scrimmage. Now, I would argue, you know, DeForest Buckner and some of these yeah. guys were pretty darn good. But, but I think the depth of big guys matched up with they're still going to get good receivers uh, quarterbacks uh, running backs they're still going to get the skill guys but if you can kind of mesh the two worlds you might be onto something yeah the the commitment they just got uh, number one junior college recruit in the country offensive lineman 6'7 345 that's not 
it's not the type of player that has been at Oregon in the past. And I do think there's a, a question there of Mario Cristobal says he still wants to play the same way offensively that Oregon has always played. Can you do that with a guy who's 345 pounds? Because Oregon, you know, traditionally has valued uh, the more athletic, more mobile offensive lineman because it fits with the type of offense they've run. The, the you know, fast tempo up and down, um, really fast-paced offense. Can you run that still with, with offensive linemen that size? Or do you become more of a team that is based on taking your time, running between the tackles, really pounding the line of scrimmage. I don't know if you can have it both ways, but I'm really interested to find out. Well, I think the the cream of the crop will have it both ways. You look at Clemson, their defensive line is all basically going to the NFL next year. And then you have, you know, the Deshaun Watsons also going there and running the spread. Alabama has two quarterbacks that just about anyone would take to run a spread offense, and they still have plenty of big guys. Um, so I think some of these elite programs are getting the best of both worlds. Yeah. All right. Well, we're kind of in that lull before football really gets going. I know you're headed out on vacation next week, and I'll be out on vacation too. So uh, whenever we check in with you again, the Duck Pod, I'm sure football will be right around the corner. But until then, uh, thanks everybody for listening to the show, and we'll talk to you next time.